I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 14, Hypothetical, Spurious, and False Shakespeare. There are two plays for which we have no texts at all. If they ever did exist, they were probably written by Shakespeare. I'll call them hypothetical works. The first is called Love's Labors One, a work of Shakespeare involving no evidence of collaboration. Among the comedies ascribed to Shakespeare in Polydus Tamia, Wit's Treasury, 1598, by Francis Mears, a compendium of sayings that included an assessment of English writers from Chaucer to Mears' own time, is a play called Love's Labors One. Scholars thought that title must have been applied to a play that we know under another name, say, The Taming of the Shrew, until, as F. E. Halliday writes, in 1953 a London bookseller discovered a list of the books that the stationer Christopher Hunt had in stock in August 1603, and these include both The Taming of the Shrew and Love's Labors One. It is possible, says Halliday, that the play was, quote, one that was later included in the folio but had been published by 1603 under another title, possibly All's Well That Ends Well, end quote. But it is also possible that the play is simply lost to us. Jonathan Bate, co-editor of the Royal Shakespeare Company's Shakespeare Complete Works, conjectures that it is a genuinely lost play, written after Love's Labor's Lost, whose conclusion he believes, quote, positively invites a sequel. The second hypothetical work, in this case with collaboration probable, is called Cardinio. Much of what follows I take from F. E. Halliday's A Shakespeare Companion. In 1613, about the time that Shakespeare was collaborating with John Fletcher on The Two Noble Kinsmen, and probably on Henry VIII, John Hemming, Shakespeare's fellow shareholder in their acting company, The King's Men, and later co-publisher of the first folio, was paid for two performances of a play called in the records Cardeno, or Cardena, one played at the royal court and one at Greenwich for the ambassador of the Duke of Savoy. No author is mentioned. Forty years later, in 1653, one Humphrey Mosley, a collector of play manuscripts, registered a play called The History of Cardenio by Mr. Fletcher and Shakespeare. Mosley was known on other occasions to have claimed Shakespeare's authorship falsely in order to sell books, but the timing of the two productions in 1613 makes it possible that this play was one of several that Shakespeare, perhaps after his retirement, worked on with Fletcher. This is all we know about the play, of which no version has been found. There was a play, produced in 1727 and published the next year, called Double Falsehood, which Lewis Tybald, the astute third editor of Shakespeare's complete works, claimed he had revised and adapted from a play by Shakespeare. But no manuscript of his source play has been found, and Tybald did not include it, in his edition of Shakespeare's plays. The original source of the lost play Cardinio and of Double Falsehood 
was the story of Cardinio in the first part of Cervantes' Don Quixote, 1605, which had appeared in an English translation by Thomas Shelton in 1612. Don Quixote and Sancho Panza find Cardinio living like an animal in romantic agony in the wilderness because, in love with Lucinda, he has been betrayed by his friend Fernando, who has himself fallen for Lucinda. After plot complications involving the Don and Sancho and Fernando's first love, Dorotea, the story ends happily, the right man with his right mate. It is tantalizing to imagine the drama that Shakespeare would have made of the story, but unless one day a copy of Cardinio is found, we have got only our own imaginations in place of the play. Now let's look at some spurious interpolated passages in Shakespeare's Macbeth, namely the Hecate bits. Scholarship has detected some degree of revision in the manuscript source for the first folio printing of Macbeth, our only early text of the play. The play is shorter than the other great tragedies, and some see what G. Blakemore Evans calls raggedness in Act One, Scene Two, and the implication of a perhaps missing scene at Act One, Scene Seven, lines forty-six to fifty-four. If cuts were indeed made for a performance at court, or for one in the country, they were made judiciously, and, as Frank Kermode writes, guesswork is pointless, for, quote, we shall hardly discover the nature of what is lost, end quote. But we have lost little, if anything, even if there were cuts. I imagine that Shakespeare intended the play to be precisely as short and intense as we find it, for the play as we have it holds together with perfect coherence. That is, it is all coherent except at three points. The Hecate passages, namely, all of Act 3, Scene 5, and Act 4, Scene 1, lines 39 to 43, and lines 125 to 132, with their respective stage directions about songs to be inserted. It is obvious that these passages are not by Shakespeare. The rhymes in these speeches are pedestrian, and the tone is inappropriate. The Hecate speech at Act 3, Scene 5, lines 2 to 33, in predicting what is to come later in the play and ending in a platitude, reveals its inferiority to the subtlety and depth of those omens in the play that are clearly the work of Shakespeare himself. As Kermode writes, quote, These passages are usually attributed to Thomas Middleton because the interpolated songs called for in the stage directions at Act 3, Scene 5, Line 33, and Act 4, Scene 1, Line 43, are certainly his. But it has recently been argued that Middleton's Hecate in his play The Witch, where the songs appear, bears no resemblance to the Hecate of Macbeth, and that some other still anonymous author must have the credit or blame for the material by which Middleton's songs are foisted into Shakespeare's play. End quote. Foisted is the right word, for these passages, speeches and songs, are nothing but a distraction from the drama. Students of Macbeth, apart from those interested in such textual questions for their own sake, will lose nothing and will avoid distracting incoherence by entirely ignoring these three passages. Finally, 
let's look at four works that have been falsely attributed to Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare was such a success in his time, and so widely recognized as a uniquely great poet, works ascribed to him were likely to sell. As a result, less than scrupulous editors and publishers who wished to be assured of lucrative sales would claim Shakespeare, or W.S., to be the author of various poems and plays that were not, in fact, his. There is almost a library of works making such claims. Many of these have been recognized to be by other poets of the age whom we know. The authors of many others remain unidentified. However, several such works have been taken up by scholars who claim Shakespeare to be the author after all. The four most notorious of them are the following. The first false attribution is The Passionate Pilgrim. The Passionate Pilgrim would be of little concern for us if the publisher, William Jaggard, had not claimed on the title page that all the booklet's twenty love poems were by Shakespeare. Jaggard is known to have published others' work under Shakespeare's name as a money-making scheme, and that is very likely what happened here. Only five of the poems in the collection are by Shakespeare, and all five already existed in earlier texts, so that Jaggard's version of them has almost no textual authority. The five poems by Shakespeare are, in Jaggard's numbering, 1. A mangled version of Sonnet 138, 2. A slightly less mangled version of Sonnet 144, and 3. Poems from Shakespeare's play Love's Labor's Lost, printed in 1598, a year before The Passionate Pilgrim, namely, number 3, a version of the sonnet spoken by Longueville, Act 4, Scene 3, Lines 58 to 71. Number 5, a version of the sonnet written by Baroon and read by Nathaniel, Act 4, Scene 2, Lines 105 to 118. And number 16, an 18-line version of the 20-line poem in tetrameter couplets read by Dumain, Act 4, Scene 3, Lines 99 to 118. Of the non-Shakespearean poems in The Passionate Pilgrim, several are written by four known poets. Richard Barnfield, Bartholomew, probably pronounced Bartlemy, Griffin, Christopher Marlowe, and Sir Walter Raleigh. The first four stanzas of Jaggard's number 19, writes Hallett Smith in his introduction in The Riverside Shakespeare, are a very inferior version of Christopher Marlowe's great pastoral lyric, the Passionate Shepherd to His Love, which had not been printed before, but was to appear in its full text, properly attributed to Marlowe, in England's Helicon, 1600. It is there followed by The Nymph's Reply to the Shepherd, attributed since the 17th century to Sir Walter Raleigh, from which the final stanza of Jaggard's number 19 is taken. The other poems, of no very remarkable quality, are of unknown authorship. End quote. The second work falsely attributed to Shakespeare is a domestic tragedy called Arden of Feversham. Some readers, notably the poet Swinburne, have thought it to be by Shakespeare, but Shakespeare's name does not appear on any of the first three editions, 1592, 1599, and 1633. 
Shakespeare's name becomes associated with the play only in the edition printed by Edward Jacob in 1770. In recent times, Macdonald P. Jackson argues for Shakespeare's authorship of at least some scenes. Others ascribe the play to Thomas Kidd, author of The Spanish Tragedy, 1588-89. The play is well-crafted, and the so-called argument scene, Act 3, Scene 5, shows dramatic flair, but its end-stopped lines and uninspired imagery lack Shakespeare's poetic touch. Barring further substantive evidence, it seems rash to ascribe the play to Shakespeare. The play is available online so that readers may decide for themselves. Next, we have the false attribution of a poem called Shall I Die? In 1985, Gary Taylor, co-editor of the Oxford Shakespeare, claimed that this poem of nine ten-line stanzas should be attributed to Shakespeare. The poem is found in two early manuscript collections by different authors, 1637 and 1639, only one of which ascribes the poem to Shakespeare. Most scholars reject the attribution, including Donald Foster, who, as I will mention in a moment, first ascribed a funeral elegy to Shakespeare, and then retracted his claim. It is improbable, and seems to most readers impossible, that this pedestrian and unimaginative Shall I Die poem could be by the poet of the sonnets and the plays we know to be Shakespeare's. Finally, there is the long poem called A Funeral Elegy. In 1989, Donald W. Foster, whom I just mentioned, published a book called Elegy by W.S., A Study in Attribution. In it, he argued that a published 578-line poem, written in memory of the speaker's murdered friend, ascribed on the title page to W.S. and published in 1612, was written by Shakespeare. The argument was based on an elaborate computerized study. Many scholars were persuaded by that argument, and many were not. Eventually, Gilles de Montserrat published a refutation of Foster's claim, attributing the poem instead to John Ford. His claim has prevailed with most scholars, including Foster himself, who published a recantation of his argument for Shakespeare's authorship of the poem. I am Dr. Rapp. And this is Appreciating Shakespeare.